Well, this morning, if you turn with me to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's where we will be this morning. It's a rare privilege to be able to preach in the morning and in the afternoon. We're going to have a little overlap. Well, I'll tell you, when you hear songs like that, it just uh, makes me think of the seraphim, cherubim in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. And is there meditating on, contemplating, just the, and being overwhelmed with the glories of God, there's just a spilling over, a fresh new contemplation and reverberation of the holiness of God. Drinking Him in. I could hear some of you just even singing along with Craig. How great is our God. Well, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. We're going to look at the glory of Christ and be overwhelmed with Him. Verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we are about to get a glimpse of the glories of Christ in this passage. And as I stand here even now, I am overwhelmed with the glory of Christ and unable to paint the portrait of Christ that you've given for us here. But you grant your spirit. And so, Spirit of God, we plead with you to impress the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ upon our hearts from this passage. We ask that you would humble our hearts that you would manifest any competing treasure and you would raise our eyes, the eyes of our heart. We ask that they would be enlightened to see the glory and radiance of Jesus Christ, that we might get a glimpse of the peaks of his exaltation. Overwhelm us, impact our hearts and lives with the Lordship of Christ. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Humanity throughout the ages of our existence has sought to glorify self in a world of futility, frailty, mortality, and death. We're afraid to walk this life and to come through it without leaving any trace of our existence, without leaving any footprints. And so we endeavor to capture our entire life in a monument, a testimony. A monument for the most part, can only capture a snapshot of our life, highlighting, glorifying, exalting maybe one achievement, but hiding many skeletons in a dark closet. Take, for example, from the far past, Alexander the Great, who, after conquering the known world, spilled countless blood of men, women, and children, commissioned architect Denocrates to build Alexandria, Egypt, as a memento, as a testimony of his Greek Hellenization, Greek culture of the known world. If we step back just a little, uh, pretty much still in our past, but recent, 
William Holland, an engineer in Southern California in the 1920s. Oh, we know a little bit about him, mainly from Holland Drive that runs through Bel Air, Beverly Hills, Los Angeles. He was the mind behind the Los Angeles aqueduct that enabled water to come from the north, Sierra, Nevada area, Northern California, to shuttle all the way down, funnel all the way down to Los Angeles, allowing really 10 million people to live in the desert. <laughs> Great achievement. What many do not know is that his career ended on March 12, 1928, when his St. Francis Dam, after being inspected by Maholland himself just hours before, broke, sending 12.5 billion gallons of water, a 10-story wall of water that buried parts of Ventura County in 20 to 70 feet of mud, killed 450 people, including 42 schoolchildren, dark closets. But what we know about him is Maholland Drive and great achievements. Today, we're ever more committed to retaining or leaving a personal witness of our life. And so we have engravings upon stone walls, named a city named after us, a tombstone, a mausoleum, street signs, a statue. Just recently walking through a garden in Lincoln with my wife and saw these little stones with someone's name there, leaving a mark. They've donated. They've lived. Our witnesses may capture one moment in time, but leave many dark closets in the past. This morning, though, I would like to look and focus our attention upon God's testament to his glory, his witness to his glory. And he has set forth a living witness to his glory that fully encompasses all that God is. Fully manifests, completely manifests, completely reveals all that God is. No skeletons in the closet. And fully encompasses all that God is, this is important, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. And so in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we will see three Christ-exalting perspectives that motivate us to glory in Christ. And as we look at these three Christ-exalting perspectives, we will be overwhelmed with Christ's glory and seek to praise Him and exalt Him. Christ is glorious. We exist for Him. We're motivated to glorify Him. Now, just a quick snapshot of this passage. I view verses 5 through 11 like a diamond with these prawns that are holding up this precious diamond. And around this diamond are scriptural truths, like our whole life is about one thing, striving together for the sake of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 27. And if we're going to pursue and push forward the gospel, it's about the attitude of humility. Oh, and by the way, we need to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's sanctification involved here, spiritual growth. Watch out for grumbling, verse 14. Be content. Hold fast to the word of life, he says in verses 16 through 18. And verse 17, we serve with joy. So in the middle of all this is this testament of the glory of God in Christ Jesus that motivates us to service and ministry. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at the first the Christ-exalting perspective, and that is his person. And then we'll grab a snapshot of his obedience. That's the second Christ-exalting perspective, his obedience. And then third, his lordship. But the, the obedience and lordship just naturally flow right out of his person. And so we're going to be emphasizing the diamond of his person and looking at different angles of that diamond and seeing the reflection of the glory of God from the person of Christ. It makes sense. Our faith is placed in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is because of his person, his greatness, that we have the cross. 
So Philippians 2, 5 through 6, let's look at his person as it pertains to his divine nature, his deity. Verses 5 and 6 say, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now we're given a description of him. Who? Who? Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We want to grab two statements here that are reflecting this angle, if you will, of the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that is the form of God. We see this again in verse 6. He existed in the form of God. And the second statement is equality with God. These statements taken together give us bold, capitalized font that underline the deity of Jesus Christ. We are to pay attention to Christ's divine nature. The word form there, the form of God, emphasizes both the outward appearance of God's glory, His radiance, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the radiance of His glory. So it's the external appearance as well as the inherent nature. The radiance of His glory is simply an outflow of who He is in His person, His nature, His essence, His deity. And Hebrews 1.3 says the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature, who He is, his radiance of his glory. There's a second statement here, and that is the statement of being equal with God, or literally the same with God. The emphasis here is upon his essential being, his nature, his essence. What the Holy Spirit is telling us through the pen of Paul is that Jesus Christ is God. At the very core of his being, of who he is, He is God. You could say it another way. Everything that God is, everything that God is, Jesus is. Christ, therefore, is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. That's all present, all powerful, all knowing, infinite love, mercy, grace, justice, righteousness. It may do well for us to examine some of Scripture's portraits of God in the Old Testament. Because there are a plethora of portraits given to us of God's holiness and wisdom and power and majesty and love and justice and wrath. But it would do well for us to take those portraits and dust off the gold nameplate and to identify this God that is represented, revealed in the Old Testament. And I say that because in John 1.18, John makes this startling statement that this causes us to recoil back a little bit. He says, no one has seen God at any time. No one. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one has seen God. There's only one who reveals God, and that is the only begotten one, the Son. It's a weighty statement. Those are great implications for our understanding of those portraits of deity in the Old Testament. Who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? Who confronted Moses at the burning bush? Who talked with him face to face? Who covered him in the cleft of the rock while his glory passed by? Who led Israel in a cloud by day and fire by night? Who opened up the temple and showed Isaiah his glory so that Isaiah couldn't even get past the very threshold of the door, trembling? Well, we see a little bit of those nameplates brushed off in the New Testament in Hebrews 11.26. We're told that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Hmm. 
1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says of Israel that all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Or John 12.41, clearly in the context of Jesus Christ, John says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him, referring to Jesus Christ. Well, why would the revelation of God in the Old Testament be centered around the person of Jesus Christ? Well, Colossians 1, 15 through 16 tells us all of creation, all of humanity exists for one purpose, to resonate the glory of Jesus Christ. Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. And this is the key statement. All things have been created by him and for him. By him, for him. Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the possessor. Christ, who spread out the heavens with the word of his power. Connecting this with Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we don't want to miss the context here. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians says. All things have been created by him and for him. Its end goal is Jesus Christ, his glory. Verses 9 through 11 make it very clear that deity, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, his divine nature, is attached to his universal lordship. This is what the whole plan of salvation is all about. The lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, here's the point. Sin responds to the deity of Jesus Christ by denying his universal lordship. Sin seeks to deny the divine nature of Christ at every point in the human heart. Hence, we see his deity outlined in the end goal, his universal lordship. He is the creator, the sustainer. Satan himself, who stood before the throne of God, jealously coveted the position of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As a result, thrown out of heaven. He continues to attack the Son by diabolically endeavoring to usurp Christ as the God of this world. His end goal is to mar every portrait of Christ in creation. But be of courage, Colossians 1, 15-16 tells us that all things, including angels, visible and invisible, rulers, authorities in the heavenly places, have been created by Him and for Him. Christ has the authority even over Satan himself. What is all this about? Do you struggle with sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart? Do worldly treasures compete for your affections for Jesus Christ? Then consider Christ's deity. Consider Christ's deity. Think and meditate on His attributes of greatness until you see the world's Marketing of its attributes of greatness is nothing but ash that passes through the fingertips. We are meant to glory in Him, and we see it as we are confessing Him as Lord. Well, there's another angle from this as we look at this beautiful diamond and see the glory of God passing through and about and around. We see not only His divine nature, but also His eternal nature. His eternal nature, we see this in verse 6, under the word, who although he existed. Now we're grabbing little words because we're looking at this, this diamond and grabbing it from a certain angle here. We see the word existed. The idea is while he existed in the form of God, he did not regard. That is, that as he was contemplating his divine nature in this passage, he at the same time 
is always existing, timeless existence is God. He's eternal. We're given another statement of his eternality. Now, it's not brought about in the NAS here, the New American Standard, but it is in the Greek. Notice there, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's a little word missing from my New American Standard. It's being, to be. One little word in the Greek, ain't I? He existed in the form of God. He did not regard being equal with God a thing to be grasped. It's equivalent to the Old Testament statement, I am, or Yahweh. It's a statement of timeless existence, timeless being, being equal with God. Say, what's the point? Well, let's press it on our heart a little bit by using another portrait from Isaiah 48. So if you go with me to Isaiah 48, I want you to connect the dots between his eternality and our dependence upon him. Again, you should be thinking, well, this is what the Lordship of Christ should accomplish in my life. So I contemplate his person. I love this. <laughs> there a number of years ago where this connected for me. It was, whoa. Verse 12 of Isaiah 48. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. Here it is. Statement of being. I am he. Timeless existence. Self-existence. Independent. Needing nothing. Neater of nobody. I am the first. That is, I am the source of all things. I am also the last. I am the the end of all things, the purpose, the goal. Verse 13, surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. And when I call to them, they stand together. Some glorious statements made of God's promise to Israel in light of Babylon, the Chaldeans. And then look with me at verse 16. And we have to ask ourselves, who is speaking? Verse 16, come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Who's the one talking? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He's the one saying, I am. I am the source of all things. I am the end, the purpose, the goal by him and for him. We move on down to verse 21 and the Holy Spirit begins to tell us about God's provision for Israel in the desert. We should be thinking of 1 Corinthians 10, that he's the rock. Verse 21, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made the water flow out of the rock for them. He split the rock and the water gushed forth. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. So out of his understanding of his eternality, his self-existence, the I am, we see his, his provision. But now look at 49 verse 1. Who's speaking? Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. Verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. There's the testament, the witness of glory. Well, it's not Israel, the nation we're talking about, because in verse 5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. Christ himself being the true Israel, the the seed, who would restore Israel and proclaim the glory of God. How does this apply to my heart? What do you do in those times of anguish, hardship? What provision, what is your source of provision? What is your source of sustenance? Who do you look to? This passage, Philippians 2, compels us to look to the eternality of Jesus Christ. 
That's why we appreciate and love His eternal deity. Let me speak a little heart to heart and open up my heart to you a little bit and crunch it. Stab it a little bit through the Word of God. One thing I've been struggling on this, this year that the Lord has been manifesting through His Scripture is I have a self-sovereign desire to sit there and meditate on my circumstances. That is, if things, a conversation happened that didn't go well, I will sit there and just stew over the thing and contemplate and meditate on every angle you could possibly imagine. And then I'm always thinking of the future here. You know, what's going to happen in this case, in this situation? Well, I'm sitting here right now in the present. My family's around me, and I'm gone. My wife will look at me and say, you, you're still in that conversation I saw you with half an hour ago. Yeah, did you know? Glaze in my eyes, what am I doing? No, I, I begin to see it. You see, what I'm doing is I'm rejecting the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. I am. I'm saying, he's not, Christ, you're not sufficient enough to be able to carry my burdens and for me to run to with my cares, to cast them upon you. I'd rather stew over it. At the same time, hurting my family. What am I called to do? Contemplate the deity of Christ. Contemplate his self-existence. It's there that I see his lordship permeating my heart and life so I can look to him as my high priest. Well, we're going to continue to glimpse Christ's person. We have seen his deity. We've seen his eternality. We're also going to see his sovereign will. And this, I can't say it gets better, but it's just another angle. And it's just more exciting as it just all is put together for me and for you as we read this. Look at verse 6. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And before we deal with the word grasped, I just note regard. To consider, to think. It's implications of Christ's will and his wisdom. This is Christ's own evaluation of his deity. This is mind-blowing for me. Here we have the infinite God. We have Jesus Christ, who infinitely understands the infinite depths of his attributes. His love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, all these aspects that we talk about when we talk about the character of God. And he understood, applying his infinite wisdom to his infinite nature and essence and being, he understood exactly how to employ his deity for the glory of the Father and the salvation of sinners without compromising the Father and his glory in the salvation of sinners. You know, we're impressed when a doctor effectively applies learning to diagnose and treat a disease. And we are even more astounded when a doctor pioneers his own study or maps out some undiscovered genetic territory and he saves humanity and he wins the Nobel Prize. And we're amazed. But would you consider with me the infinite God? I mean, just think of the word even infinite. We can't even describe it. We, we attach not to things. He's not limited. He's not finite. He's not searchable from our side of things. It's all that we can express of this unfathomable depth of, of God's being. 1 Corinthians 2.10 tells us the Holy Spirit searches the depths of God, and, and only He can. He is God, the third person of the Trinity. But here we have the Holy Spirit. And now, not only the Holy Spirit, but we have Jesus Christ fully regarding and comprehending His divine nature. The infinite God, self-existent, limitless in all of His being, fully and completely understanding, considering His divine nature and affecting the employment of Himself for the glory of the Father and the salvation of sinners 
so that he does not compromise the glory of God by compromising justice or holiness or mercy or grace. It amazes me. It's astounding. We think of the depths of space and the sun being some 93 million miles away and Alpha Centauri even you know, 400 times that. We can't even, our eyes can only pick up about 2,000 stars on the horizon as it is. And then you think of not just space, but you think about the infinitude of God. Where does his being stop? Could you ever penetrate him? Absolutely not. 1 Kings 8.27 says, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. He is a spirit. He created the heavens. He created space. He stretched them out, Isaiah 48 says. Much, much deeper than that, Christ, before taking on humanity, perfectly, fully, completely evaluating His divine nature for the glory of God and for the salvation of sinners, freely, sovereignly choosing to employ His divine nature for the redemption of mankind. Now this takes us to the word grasped, which has thrown many commentators into quite a debate on what's going on here. The word I think King James trans- translated, and you could correct me, but it's the idea of robbed, to rob, to grasp. I think the context explains it. Because the whole purpose of this is resonating in Apex, is verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. And so I think the purpose here, what's being stated behind this grasp, is that Christ fully understood the purpose of his deity. Fully understanding it his own essence, and he would not use his deity at the expense of the Father's glory. He would not compromise the Father's glory. So here Christ is, this perfect plan to save sinners and yet glorify the Father. In John 13, verse 31, would you go there with me? John 13, verse 31, we see this relationship of the father and son is the the son glorifies the father and the father glorifies the son in himself and this the love really of the trinity the holy spirit glorifying the son and the son to the father and the father to the son and it's just blessed glorifying of one another and frankly we didn't even need to look at this passage because in philippians 2 it's already there christ humbles himself the father exalts him to the glory of god the father but it capstones it here in John 14 or John 13:31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, "Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him immediately." That's the point of Philippians 2. Christ would not compromise the glory of the Father. So infinitely understanding the infinite depths of his being and applying himself to the salvation of sinners to the glory of the Father. And this takes us to another aspect of his person, his divine power. His divine power. We've seen his will, his eternality, and his deity. We're looking now at his power. And we see this in verse 7 and 8. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, verse 8, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Twice we see here that Christ 
emptied, verse 7, himself. He acts upon himself. We see again in verse 8, he humbled himself. Christ is the actor. Christ is the initiator. This is proclaiming the power, the divine power of Jesus Christ in his life, emptied himself by taking on humanity, and in his death, even to the point of death on the cross. This is what Christ did. He emptied himself, he humbled himself. Now what the key is here is it's, it's in the context of humility. My New American Standard says that he emptied himself. The King James Version says he made himself of no account. And the English Standard Version says he made himself nothing. And the emphasis is not that he emptied himself of his divinity or his attributes, as that song says, that he emptied himself of all but love. Rather, the emptying had to do with making himself nothing, of no account. And as the context says, humbling himself. How? By adding humanity. So through addition, he took on humanity. But don't forget the key point here. It's in humility. It's in humility. You see, the point here is that Christ's nothingness is everything. Did you get that? Christ's nothingness, his humility, is everything. Jesus glorified the Father by demonstrating that his nothingness is everything, his weakness is power. And if that doesn't humble and cut straight to the heart and show us our pride and self-confidence and self-wisdom, there's nothing. When Christ could come in humility, in nothing, of no account, and in that humility show his glorious power to affect our salvation and the glory of the Father. We are amazed when, and even frightened to contemplate the power of an atomic weapon. Since the Cold War, Hollywood, through the big screen, has contemplated many diverse ways that uh, humanity will wipe itself off the face of the planet. And granted, to think that a molecule invisible to the human eye contains enough power to destroy the planet, and all those little atoms, fusion or fission, or however you want to deal with it, it's frightening to think about that. But what we are seeing in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is the power of deity, God before time and space, fully, completely independent, self-sustained. The power of Christ brought the universe into existence out of nothing by the word of his power. And so we are seeing here Christ's deity, his divine attributes, all encompassed and encased in humility. We are seeing how eternally superior is Christ's power, that his humility and weakness would rend the heavens, rend the earth, rescuing sinners from eternal judgment and hell without compromising himself in any way. More than that, to the glory of the Father, the ultimate glory of the Father and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That should bring about an amazement. Christ, you are supreme. Exalt you. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the cross is foolishness and weakness because God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Look at his humility. Octavius Winslow writes this statement, and you just hold on to your seats. It's about halfway through here where he makes this bold statement. He says this, Study him in the cross of Jesus, 
look at him through this wondrous telescope. And although as through a glass darkly you behold his glory, the Godhead in awful eclipse, the son of his deity setting in blood, yet that rude and crimson cross more fully reveals the mind of God, more harmoniously discloses the perfections of God, and more perfectly unveils the heart of God, and more fully exhibits the glory of God. Here it is. This is it. Then the combined power of 10,000 worlds like this even though sin had never marred and the curse had never blighted it. 10,000 worlds unmarred by sin, and yet the cross is what perfectly proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ. It exalts His holiness, righteousness, grace, mercy, wisdom, glory, all there. But see, it's not the cross itself, it's not some magical properties in the wood. It is Christ's person and His work there that proclaim His glory. He puts it on display before our eyes. Think of the sun. As you see a cloud that passes underneath the sun and you see the rays of the sun emanating, scattering from the cloud. It's not the cloud that has relevance. Without the cloud, I, I, I would see the sun in all its heat and intensity, but I wouldn't see the rays. It's disseminating off the cloud. But it draws attention to the incredible power and beauty of the, of the sun. The same thing with dust as you... You open those wind sills or the bed and throw the bed sheet over it and it scatters the dust. It's not the dust that is anything. But you see the rays of the sun reflecting off of all these scattered pieces of dirt dust. And we see here in the humility of Christ in the cross, we see the radiance of His glory. We can see Him, His beauty. Will you peer through the humble Christ to glimpse the glories of God? Well, there's one more consideration of his person before you loop it together, and that's his humanity, Christ's humanity. It says again in verse 7 and 8, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Same word form is the form of God, the very essence, the nature of humanity, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. What Philippians does not say is that Christ ceased to be God when he took on humanity. It does not say that. It does not say that Christ's humanity became divine. That's false because he was regarding his equality with God prior to taking on humanity. It does not say that Christ is a demigod, half God, half man, 50-50. What it does say is that Christ added the human nature to his divine nature, fully God, fully man, two natures in one person. Heart to heart now, get into my kitchen, your kitchen. How does this impact my heart? All that God is in Christ Jesus is for us. It's full humanity and full deity. All that God is in Christ Jesus, his deity, is for us. He did not lose his infinite wisdom, his infinite power, his infinite grace, but rather combining infinite power and infinite condescension, humility. John Owen writes, he becomes a sanctuary for distressed sinners. It is all in Christ Jesus. Glory in him. That's why Romans 8 can say, if God is for us, who is against us? But all that humanity is in Christ Jesus is also for us. His weakness, he was tempted as we are yet without sin. He grew in knowledge, wisdom, and in favor with God and man. He, he sorrowed, he suffered, he surrendered his life. He became a righteous sacrifice 
for us. He provided His righteous obedience for us to depend upon. He became our representative, our high priest, our king, our prophet. Brooks writes that it is as if he said, You shall have as true an interest in all my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. All my attributes for your good as they are mine for my glory. My grace, saith God, shall be yours to pardon you. My power shall be yours to protect you. My wisdom shall be yours to direct you. My goodness shall be yours to relieve you. My mercy shall be yours to supply you. And my glory shall be yours to crown you. Beautiful. Well, we've seen his person. And we're going to wrap up now the next two. His obedience and his lordship. And it is worth asking after coming out of contemplating the glories of Christ. Why would we be so impressed with the obedience of Jesus Christ? Because after looking at the glory of Christ, we look back at our hearts and lives and see us as despicable, wicked sinners. Wretches. As Isaiah 64, 6 says, that we, we, we offer that even our, our righteousness to God is as filthy rags. Our perceived self-righteousness is nothing but ash to God. Death. It is when we can say that you are my all in all that we begin to realize that all I offer God is disobedience and rebellion and self-worship. I do not bring Him glory with every thought, every deed. And so that's why we see in verse 8 this incredible statement of his obedience. He says, by becoming obedient to the point of death. And we want to run right to the cross. Boom. Let's run to the cross here. Obedient to the point of death on the cross. There I am. It's the cross that he was obedient. Yes, it's the cross. But he became obedient. The point is in his life. And that race of life ran all the way to the cross. The point is, is he came to be born in a manger to take on humanity, to be knit the divine nature and human nature in his mother's womb so that he could could think every obedient, perfect thought on behalf of sinners and live every perfect, obedient deed and action on behalf of sinners, completely fulfilling the law so that Christ's righteous obedience could be imputed to the account of those who believe in him because we have no obedience to offer him that is all corrupt with self-glory. That's why when we contemplate his obedience in life, as Romans 5.19 says, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So we glorify him as we even meditate on the glory of Christ's obedience. I need his obedience. I need his righteousness. Paul in Philippians 3.9 echoes this. And, and draws the final conclusion on the matter. Verse 9, he applies Christ's obedience to his own life in a recognition of this truth. Verse 9 and chapter 3, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. When I value his obedient life, no, more than that, I depend completely upon him. And repenting of my attempt to offer some level of obedience through good works or self-wisdom. When I'm repenting and trusting and depending on Christ's obedience, not only his obedience in life, but it says his obedience to the point of death on the cross, he became a curse for us. He took that 
just payment, the wrath of God. It's in repentance and faith in Him that He is glorified and proclaimed as the the one who alone is able to save a sinner like me. As I took these, even this, and I began to just think, how can this impress my heart with the glory of Christ and His death, His obedience and His life and His death on the cross? I began to think, you know, there's no way that I could fully understand the, the guilt of my sin. I mean, I could take what Scripture says, understand I'm guilty before God, but how can I fully grasp the weight and guilt of my sin? By the grace of God, because Christ has been my substitute and took my place, bearing the wrath of God, bearing my sin in his body, as First Peter says, he alone understands the guilt of my sin because he alone took that full, unmitigated judgment of God. He became the guilt offering. Every lash of God's wrath for every sin he bore so that by his wounds we could be healed. And so in that sense, I could never fully comprehend that weight. Christ does. But what I can do is draw from Christ in his glory and what he did to step down into time, into space, to bear my guilt. And I can draw from that and go, oh, what a precious redeemer. What a glorious redeemer. As Romans 3.26 says, where then is boasting, it is excluded after contemplating the glorious riches of Christ's Righteousness and obedience. Robert Oppenheimer was the one man responsible for the development of the atomic bomb the United States used against Japan at the close of World War II. He graduated from Harvard with honors, studied at a number of European universities in theoretical physics. That already blows my mind, so even just the contemplating of the word. He was considered one of the top theoretical physicists in the world and specialized in the study of subatomic particles and gamma rays. Okay. From 1943, he began directing 4,500 men and women at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Two years, $2 billion later, detonated the first atomic bomb. And upon seeing the first fireball and mushroom cloud, he underwent a total reevaluation of his whole life commitment. He said this, I am become death. Two months later, he resigned and spent the rest of his life trying to push that atomic genie back into the bottle. Hiroshima, 92,000 people dead or missing. Nagasaki, three days later, 40,000 people killed, 40,000 injured. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and those of you who are not in Jesus Christ, that is the road. I am death. I am destruction. The glory of Christ, his person, his work on the cross, his obedience, his payment for my sin. Now it all pulls together in a proclamation of his lordship. Just two observations. Let's look at verse 9 and 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two observations. Number one. It is in the universal lordship of Christ that God the Father is most glorified. And I can say, God is most glorified. Because the Father's commitment to the glory of the Son and the Son's commitment to the glory of the Father. So how dearly do I love the lordship of Christ? That is the heart of the Father. The Father's greatest glory, Christ's lordship. But there is a second, very compelling observation here. 
In verse 10, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, his supremacy, his glory, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in hell, hell's captives themselves will be so captivated by the name of Christ, his supremacy, that they will bow the knee and acknowledge his lordship. They will be compelled by his glory. How captured are you with the glory of Christ? Have you been more captivated by the glory of Christ than hell's captives? Father, we thank you for this beautiful portrait of our glorious Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and all that he's done. We offer nothing but death, sin, guilt, Lord, thank you for giving us a peek, peek through the cross, a little crevice through which we can see through the window of humility of Christ and see this beautiful glory of heaven, the glory of you and the glory of your Son. May we be more and more impressed and live out each day of our life captivated by the glory of Christ in his humility. We look forward to the day when we will stand before you, O Lord, having this futile flesh, stripped away in glory, perfect minds, fully able to comprehend and take in without the competition of sin, your glory, and to be astounded and to grow in understanding of your glory for the rest of eternity. Because indeed, you are infinite. We praise you, we worship you through Jesus Christ. Amen.